the rest of us, hopefully you have a Bible, something close. Hannah, how are you? I didn't see you earlier. It's like, oh, <laughs> she's still here. We're going to be looking at uh, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And um, I'll flash the title here, and you're going to go not, aw, but you're going to go, aw. <laughs> because it may not be the thing that you might be, oh, man, on Wednesday night, I'm tired. You're going to talk about ecclesiastical government. Ugh. I've been doing a lot of work for the Synod. I'm heading a committee that's looking at removing a historically important, theologically poorly constructed, psychologically loved part of our Constitution. So we're navigating a lot of perils. Now, we don't want any churches to leave, leave the nomination over the elimination of these three paragraphs. Uh, it's called the Declaratory Statement. Um, at the same time, it's not really, at best, poorly written. Um, and yet, there's some people that are super attached because it's always been there from the very beginning. So we studying a lot of church government and Presbyterian church government through the through the last couple of centuries in the United States and precedents and so on to figure out what we should be doing. And uh, so I think this is going to be good. Not to toot my own horn, but I think the study will be good for all of us as we look at this <laughs> Ephesians 4, not because of me, but because of the passage it's itself. Ephesians 4, starting verse 11. Reading down to verse 16. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of man and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effect of working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now the word government tends to carry a negative connotation, especially depending on who is in power and what is going on in, in the country, in the state, and locally. We generally think of government as a necessary evil, something that we have to live with, but we're not super excited about. And sometimes these thoughts extend to the way that we think about the government of the church. Yet, God's word tells us that the government of the church is a gracious gift from God, from the very hand of Christ, to us. And in this passage, Paul tells us that the offices established by God for the well-being of His church are a gift from the risen church, from the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ 
himself. Um, you can see that in verses 11 through 16, and we're going to develop that there. But as we look at verses 11 and 16, you can notice that this is not rocket science, but they're in the middle of the chapter. right? So you have stuff that went before, stuff that follows it. And it's good for us to take a look at, uh, at how we got to verse 11. So a uh, brief overview of Paul's argument in chapter 4 that led him to say, here, the, these things, these offices are a gift, gracious gift from the Lord Jesus Christ. The chapter starts in verse 1 with Paul saying that, that, that as Christians, we live, we have been called by Jesus to follow him and we must walk, that is, live according to his, the call that he has placed in our lives. A call that refers back to chapter 1 that says we've been called by the Holy Spirit to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he, verses 2 through 6, and he repeats that in verse 15, he tells us that we are to live out our calling in Jesus Christ in humility, in love, and unity because we have one God and one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he shifts that to talk about the risen Savior, the ascending Savior, the one that gives gifts. In verses 7 through 10, he says that in the unity, in this unity, the unity of the body, there is a, there is a diversity of gifts given to each by Christ to be used for his glory and the good of his church. So we're not called to be all the same. Unity is not the same as uh, being all the same. We are, we are united in the, in the diversity of gifts that God has given us. Uh, Peter tells us that every one of us has gifts from the Lord. No, no believer is left without gifts from the Lord to be used in the body of Christ so that we all together can grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in this, this context that he talks about the gifts of office. It's important that you notice that gifts from Christ in the Bible are not manifested in stuff, but in people. People are gifts from Christ. Sure, all, things, all good things come from the Lord, but when he refers to gifts, he's talking about people. And people are given uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ. He said that in chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So these gifts are primarily manifested through people. And we manifest these gifts for the good of the church. And having said all that, one of these gifts that Christ gave was the offices of the church. See that in verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. First thing I want you to notice in verse 11 is that Paul puts the emphasis on the fact that the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers are a direct gift from Christ. Their gift to the church. If you look there in verse 11, there's the word himself. That word is unnecessary. Uh, in Greek grammar, it, it, that, that needed to be there. You don't need to have a subject for us to know what the verb is talking about. And yet, Paul inserts that subject as an extraordinary word to say, so that we can be focused on the fact that it was Jesus himself, he himself gave. It wasn't, it wasn't through the mediation of somebody else. Jesus himself 
gives to the church, gives, gives, gave to the church the office of the pastor, teacher, the apostle, the prophet. And that's important for us to think about that, that Christ himself instituted the offices in the church. And let me hasten, though, to say that this does not mean that every pastor or every elder is a gift from God. As a matter of fact, some of them seem to be a gift from the other side, not from, from God. But the office of the pastor, the office of the elder, the office of the apostle, the office of the prophet, the office of the evangelist, as listed here in verse 11, are gifts from Christ to his church and are therefore good. And that's important because there are some groups that think there should be no offices in the church. That there should be just a bunch of people together and not have any differentiation, no offices of any sort in the church. First, that doesn't work. Secondly, is to deny that, God, that God, Christ is good. That the gifts that Christ has given to his church are, are good. Now, what's the question that comes to mind? What's the question that comes to my mind? <laughs> if Christ gave them to the church, where are the apostles? Where are the prophets? Where are the evangelists? Well, Christ gave these offices to his church so that each one could, could fulfill its function in the life of the church. Life as in the entire life from Christ's first coming to the second coming. So he's looking at the church as a whole. Not just a particular cross-section of the church. It doesn't mean that every day, every faith, every era, every century, every year, every decade of the church, you're going to find all these offices there. But here, all these offices are given for the life of the church. The apostle, the apostles and the prophets are of the utmost importance to the church. Paul says that they are the foundation of the church. If you look at, uh, just flip two chapters back to chapter 2, verses 19, 20, and 21. Paul says, Now therefore you are all no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens of the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The foundation being built and being eternally strong, there, there, there remains no need for more foundational material. Are you with me? Prophets, apostles, and these are New Testament prophets, I think, because of the order, apostles, prophets. They are the foundation. The foundation is being laid, Paul says. Now the building is being built. You don't keep on using foundational material to build the building. You use different materials. So the apostles were for the life of the church in the foundational Area, era of the church. The apostles and prophets were here to give us the New Testament itself on which the church is being built. The New Testament that hasn't been given, then we don't need the materials to be given again because we already have in the Bible. Some of their functions may continue through the office of the elder, the pastor, but as far as the revel revelatory nature of being an apostle, of being a prophet, that has ceased 
because the Bible is concluded. The foundation's been laid. We don't need that anymore. On top of that, if you remember, according to the, the, both Peter in 1 Peter and the apostles in Acts chapter 1, there's one necessary qualification of being an apostle. Remember what that is? Having been an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. So that would be pretty difficult to do today, right? To, to having been an eyewitness of Christ on the first century uh, today. But theologically, the argument is we don't need apostles anymore today. We did need them, but now we have the New Testament. The foundation has been laid that those offices are no longer for today, even though they are so important for the life of the church. Any questions on that? Jerry? So are you saying that we don't, were the prophets part of the foundation tour? Yes. They still, yes. Well, how come that the pastors and teachers, are they part of the foundation? That leaves us with our translation, what that Jesus calls pastors and teachers, as actually my next point. We're going there. So we have the apostles and the prophets. Paul clearly says in chapter 2 that they are foundational material. He doesn't include the pastors and teachers in the foundational material, which tells us that's a continuing office, is not because they're not bearing revelation from God. The pastors, teachers are not bringing new stuff from God as the apostles and the prophets. It's impossible to be a prophet in the sense of the Bible prophet without being a, a, a means, a vehicle of direct revelation from, from God. And that's why if a prophet says something that wasn't true, he was supposed to be stoned because he was claiming to be something that he was, was not. Because he was every prophet in the Bible... Is to be a conduit of revelation from God. And we have the complete revelation. We don't need that anymore. But we leave with what our translation calls pastors and teachers. And some have differentiated those two offices. Calvin used to have the office of the pastor and then the office of the doctor or the office of the teacher. And he saw those as two different functions in the church. But grammatically, these are two words that refer to the same group of people. Pastor teachers. He's not talking about two separate groups, but one group of people, pastors, teachers. If you want to look it up, it's called the Granville Rule, uh, Granville Sharp Rule. Uh, there. Take just my word for it right now that this is one group of people, the pastors and the teachers, are to be an equal sign uh, between the two. Um, Oh, I skipped. Nobody, nobody, exactly. Nobody noticed that I skipped. I took my eyes off and I couldn't, with my trifocals or whatever it is, I couldn't see my, the evangelist. It seems like as the New Testament went on, the office of the evangelist conflated with the office of the pastor or the elder. Because when Paul talks to Timothy, he says, You be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. It was no longer an office by itself but now a component of the office of the elder, the pastor, as we see him talking to uh, Timothy. Now, I don't think it would be wrong if we're going to ordain somebody to go do church planting that we call him an evangelist. Or we 
ordain somebody to go to the mission field that we call him an evangelist. But the office itself is being now merged with the office of the elder, the pastor here. Now, I want us to think about the word pastor more broadly than we are used to. And we tend to think of this word, the word pastor, as describing the guy who is paid to work at the church, the guy that went to seminary, the guy that went that wears a suit on Sunday and preaches on most Sundays. And that's okay. That's, that's one way to use the word. But the New Testament uses this word to describe one function of all elders. It's not the word just for the minister, as we call the minister, but it's the word that's applied to all the elders of the church. There are two passages that uh, I think will make this clear for us. One is this, Acts 20.17, and then skipping to verse 28. And 20.17 tells us what's going on. So Paul is called the elders of the Ephesian church, right? That's what it says there in the beginning. So he comes and he speaks, and this is the group of people he's speaking to, the elders of the Ephesian church that came to talk to him. And then in verse 28, he calls them, what? Overseers. And what's their function? To shepherd. Now, um, that's, that's one issue with English, where you have words coming in from all kinds of different um, source languages. So we have the word shepherd here, the verb to shepherd. And then we have the word pastor in Ephesians. And we think there are two different words. But they're same word, same kinds of word coming from two different languages of origin. To shepherd is to pastor. And so all the elders of the church in Ephesus are to pastor the church, are to shepherd the church. Because the word pastor just means shepherd. That's all it is there. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter, where he says, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. Overseer is a word for bishop. And yet he says there are also elders there in verse 1. So you can see that this word pastor simply means shepherd. And these pastors help us see that, this, that all elders are pastors. And they actually show the three functions of the office of the elder. You see, especially here in 1 Peter 5, the, the man is called an elder, he's called an overseer, and he's called a shepherd or a pastor. As an elder, the, the idea of elders, the idea of exercising wisdom, the idea of over, oversight is, well, overseers, and the idea, of, the idea of care and leadership, the idea of a shepherd. And these are the three functions of the same office. Of elder. So, not only the office we call the pastor today, but the office of the elder as a whole is a gracious gift from God. It's a good thing that God's given. Christ Himself gave to the church uh, the office of the elders. Any questions? All right, so before I go any much further, I want to notice that Paul says that Christ gave some to be pastors and teachers. Gave some to be pastors and teachers. What does the word some there imply? It implies two things. Can you think of what they, what they are? Not everyone. Not everyone? Yes, that's one thing that implies. What's the other thing that implies? That some will, right? Yes. Not everyone, but some will. So not every man is called to be an elder. 
And that's okay. This is important to remember in case you are never chosen to be one. Not every man is called to be an elder. There are other ways to serve Christ and His church if you are not called to be an elder. But on the other hand, some are called to be elders, pastors. And I think that Christ gives pastors, elders to every segment of His church. If you do have a true church of Jesus Christ, Christ will have given that church men who are capable to be elders and pastors. Because that's what Ephesians 4 says. If you can't, if, you, if there are not men in a church who are willing and able to be elders, then there's a serious spiritual problem with that church. And care must be taken there. Every man in the church of Jesus Christ needs to consider whether God called him to be an elder. You need to be looking at 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 8. You need to be looking at Titus 1 and work at exhibiting those characteristics. Because that's, we tend to think of those as qualifications for the spiritual, but that's the floor. Every man should, every man should be at least that. Every man should be at least that. No, man can, no Christian man can look at that and say, oh, husband, own wife, ah, I guess I'm just going to keep on being a Christian, not an elder, not for me. Or, oh, I have to be a good father. Uh, not, not for me. No, that's the, that's the very minimum of being a godly man. And that's all that there is. It's not for the super spirit. So every man needs to consider whether God's calling him to be a, an elder. Any questions on that or comments? Okay, so how many do we need? How many elders do we need? What's the magic number? Seven, right? Huh? Enough? Yeah. Whatever enough is, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, so we have to be careful not to be too caught up in, 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 um, in numbers. In, um, in the 4th century, so the 300s, early 300s, the church in Ephesus had 146 elders and seven deacons. You know why? Because in Acts chapter 6, they ordained only seven deacons, though there must be the magic number for every church anywhere. So, but it wasn't the point anyway, but so, don't, don't get too caught up. For me, the magic number is the more the merrier. Because if a man is qualified to be an elder, it means that Christ has given that man as a gift to that church. Does that make sense? So, uh, so it means that Christ is graciously blessing us with that man. Same with, with deacons. Uh, but the scriptures don't give us a set number. But they do say that each local church should have a plurality of elders to govern, it, govern its affairs. That's clear. More than one. That's, that, that's what is the design. So if you have less than one... You can have less than one. You could, but if you have less than two, uh, in, in our tradition, is, it means that that church is imperfectly formed. Is an imperfectly formed church because you have less than what God has established in His revealed will for the government of the church. Uh, for, just as an example, in Acts 20, 17, He calls for the elders of the church. See that? One church, but they had elders, plural, there. See that in Acts 14, where uh, in, in the underlines 
portion there says that uh, they, that, that Paul and his entourage had appointed elders for them in every church. Elders, plural, in every single church. So you can see a plurality, plurality, multiple elders in each church. Uh, Titus, uh, Paul says that to Titus as well, that elders were appointed in every, they were to appoint elders in every city. In 1 Timothy 5, let the elders who rule well, talking to a particular church, let the elders of this church rule well, um, be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while he, it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So, multiplicity. More than one is what God has designed for his church, and each one of the office itself is a gift from God. Any questions? All right, one last thing from this last passage. This, this passage is important for several reasons. I'm going to give you two. One is bonus, the other one is for the lesson. You see the, um, it says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. See that? So that's a quote from the Old Testament, from the Torah. Okay? But then you say, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. You know what that's from? It's the Gospel of Luke. And what does Paul call both? Scripture. So Paul himself thought the Gospel of Luke was part of the Bible. So you can see he was authenticating the canon of the New Testament where Paul puts Luke and the Torah, the holiest of the books of the Jewish people, in the same level as being scriptures from the Lord. But for this lesson, this, this passage gives us the opportunity to consider some distinctions in the office of the elder. There's only one office of the elder, but there's some distinctions in the office. The Bible teaches that there are two perpetual offices in the church. They are the elders and deacons, yes. These are the perpetual offices in the church. But this passage indicates that within the office of the elder, there is at least one distinction. There are elders who rule well. You see that there? And then there are elders who rule well and labor in word and doctrine. That word specially is very important. Specially indicates uh, having a group and then removing some from that group uh, or highlighting some from that group. Still the same group, but these ones are highlighted over, over here. So the second one, the, the one, especially those who labor in word and doctrine, is what we call pastors today. But they are from the same bucket of being elders. When he's laboring in, in the word and doctrine, he's exec- exercising a different function at that time. And because this elder or elders labor in word and doctrine in a way that the other elders don't, he also is the one who performs the sacraments because the sacraments are the visible words of God. And the sacraments, the preaching, are so connected that one that does the one should also do the other. And notice that he labors in the word. And that, is, that is, means his primary occupation is in the word and doctrine. And that's why he's, Paul says that the labor is worthy of his wages. That's why he's laboring in, that's his primary occupation, he's worthy 
of his wages. And this is how he must serve the congregation best. The one appointed to be the, pre- the preacher is, that's how he serves. That's the best way for him to show his love for the congregation is by laboring in the word and in doctrine. Any questions? Okay, last thing. We'll finish here. Why did Christ give these offices to the church? It's in the text. If you look at verse 12. (laughs) For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. In our passage, the primary function of the elders is to equip the saints. To equip is to provide what's necessary to accomplish a particular task. To equip is to restore someone to a place where he or she can do what God has called him or her to do. And Paul says that the leaders in the church must equip the people for two tasks. The work of the ministry and the edifying of the body of Christ. If you look at there, verse 12, and this is important for us to have it in front of you there. You see the first four is in the very beginning of the verse. Four... The equipping, that word for is different than the other two words for in the rest of the verse. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body. That's the second two fours are not the same Greek word as the first, the first one. It should read that Christ gave pastors and teachers unto or toward the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body. Elders are there. Our elders are at their best when they are equipping the people in the church to serve each other and to build up the body of Christ that is the church. Notice that the job of the elders is to equip the saints, and the saints are the ones that go, do the work of the ministry. The saints are the ones who edify the body of Christ. It's not a performance, it's not a show, it's not a one man thing where He is doing everything. He's just equipping you, or the elders as a whole are equipping you, that you do the work of the ministry. You do the the, the edifying of the body of Christ. So if you see your your role as a church member is just come and sit in the pew, you're misguided. and, And we are not doing our job well as elders. Because you are the ones that are to be edifying the body of Christ. You're the ones that are to be doing the work of a ministry, which is just the work of serving. And this is church leadership at, it, at its best, training people to serve each other, to build up the church, and to love their Lord. And that's why God gave the gift of the office of the elder to his church. Any questions or comments? All right, so let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you're good to us. Thank you for your, the great gifts that our Savior has given us. Help us to treasure these gifts. Now, Father, we pray to dismiss us with your blessings. Bring us back on your day. Prepare to worship you. For asking in Jesus' name, amen.